So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the people in front of me and the people in the overflow room and the people watching from home. And Lord, we we tremble as we we know that you want to speak to us now. And the fact is, Lord, if you didn't shield us uh, from yourself through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't, we would be, you would incinerate us, the very word of your power in a moment. So we come with fear and trembling, Lord, we gladly take shelter under the promises of your word because we are trusting in the Savior. And we are safe. So, Lord, help me to be faithful to the scriptures and help us to have minds that are conformed not to the pattern of this world, but to the image of Christ. So that we can grasp what is written in Galatians 2. Protect us from the evil one, Lord. Do not let him pluck the word from the path or choke it out or dry it up. Save the lost, Lord. Strengthen this church and be our teacher this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Booker T. Washington, uh, in his book, Up From Slavery, describes a scene among his fellow blacks on the night of the proclamation uh, of their freedom. This is what he says. There was no sleep the night before. All was excitement and expectancy. Early in the morning, we were all sent for. The, the most distinct thing I can now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was the day that she had for so long been praying, but feared that she would never live to see. For some minutes, there was great rejoicing and thanksgiving and wild scenes of ecstasy. And there was no feelings of bitterness. In fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. Well, that's a moving a moving narrative from a former slave. But what I find interesting about that is the last line where he says that, in fact, there was pity among the slaves for our former owners. I mean, it's like they were so overwhelmed by the joy of being set free for a moment that their pity for their owners made them even think or contemplate for a second staying. Can you imagine that? But I guess... I guess if you're free, then you're free, right? You can almost hear that those slaves singing triumphantly, the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. God, Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. But if you saw them rejoicing, my guess is you never would have guessed what took place next. Washington continues. The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period, for I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 out into the world to provide for himself. Now that they were liberated, they found possession of freedom to be far more serious than they had anticipated. Well, I'm glad I read that uh, piece from Up From Slavery this week because it teaches us a vital lesson. It teaches us that proclaiming freedom and possessing it are two different things. I mean, it, another way to say it is it teaches us that receiving freedom and realizing it are different. But it also shows that while freedom is not easily gained, it is easily lost. 
But the truth be told, I didn't learn that lesson from Booker T. Washington. I actually learned it from Galatians 2, and Booker only confirmed it. I want to show you that in this morning's passage. But before I get into it, I want to say two things up front. The first thing is this. Um, if you heard, As you heard Nick read the text this morning, it may have seemed to you like an extremely complex passage. Uh, Paul can be quite hard to understand. His sentences in this particularly, this uh, passage are really long. Lots of parentheses, lots of thoughts that he's adding in in places. And, it, and, and honestly, as I sat down this week to prepare this message, um, I feared that we might get lost this morning in a maze and never really be able to find the heart. Um, but to my great relief, and I hope to yours as well, uh, I found that the passage actually was clear after all. And what you need to know is this, is that Paul in this text is taking us back to first principles. So if we'll follow the heart of his argument, we won't get lost. Number two, uh, today's passage may also seem removed from our world today. You know, as you, as you go, out, go about your weekly routine, you may think, what does this text have anything to do with my life? And again, um, not so. Uh, what Paul has to say here is extremely contemporary and relevant to our situation. All right? So I just wanted to lay that out there for you uh, at the beginning, at the outset. So let's get into the text. Uh, one thought gripped me, well, lots of thoughts did, but one really gripped me this week from Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and it's this, this thought. Preserving the gospel for Paul, verse 5, was about preserving the freedom it produces. Preserving the gospel, verse 5, was about preserving the freedom it produces, verse 4. Or, if you have no gospel, you have no freedom. Let me say it another way. If we get the gospel wrong, it's not just a theological mistake, it's slavery. <laughs> That's what Paul's after in Galatians chapter 2. That means that the gospel has everything to do with you this morning. It has everything to do with your freedom. Uh, your freedom from sin, your freedom from guilt, your freedom from condemnation, and your freedom from the law. In fact, the subject of freedom is so pervasive in Galatians that this letter has been known as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. There's no book of the Bible that so emphasizes our liberty and our freedom in Christ than Galatians. And Paul knows how precious freedom is uh, because he knows what it costs the Savior to secure it for us. And he knows also how easy it is to exchange that freedom for spiritual bondage and go right back into slavery. So that's why I've entitled the message this morning, From Slavery to Freedom and Back Again. Because, like a recidivist, all of us have within us a propensity to return to the thing that messed us up to begin with. In medical language, it's known as a relapse. It's, a, it's reverting back to a destructive pattern of behavior that got us in trouble to begin with. And since freedom in Christ is the thing being assaulted in Galatians 2, this text really matters. And Paul writes with a great deal of urgency to protect it. And there's one main point in this passage, and it's this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the point. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Another way to say it is this. We are accepted by God through faith in Christ with nothing added. We are accepted by God through Christ with nothing added. The gospel is sufficient. And that's the point of verses 1 through 10. Paul is emphasizing the fact that righteousness and justification and life and freedom come from Christ and Christ alone. And the second you add anything to Jesus, you've lost that freedom and you've returned to slavery. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning really teasing out that uh, and the implications of it for our, our, our daily living and as a church. Uh, let me explain what's going on in the text. Uh, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is, is difficult. It's hard to understand. 
I, I read the text five or six times in a row to even figure out, okay, what's going on here? Who are the characters? What's happening? What's the point? I mean, it's very difficult. So here, here's the deal. Um, the freedom of the gospel is being threatened from all sides. And this text really is about victory. Um, this text is fundamentally about victory in three major areas. And, and it's about victory over the gospel. It's about victory in the church. And it's about victory in, in really missions or missiology. So there's a lot. This, this passage is filled with language of victory. This is it's really a climax. Because if, if, the thing, if things go south here in Galatians 2, we're in big trouble. And, and all kinds of things are, I mean, we have no idea the implications of, of things going south here. So this is a really pivotal passage. And here's the deal. Here's what's happening. The freedom of the gospel is being assaulted from every side. And from the beginning of this letter, one of the things Paul has been doing is he is emphasizing over and over again the fact that his gospel and the authority by which he preaches it are, are independent. Paul is, is confident that he has received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's confidently going around preaching that gospel, and he is proclaiming that independence. And that's why he begins in verse 1 with the fact that he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem for 14 years. And by the way, that 14 years means 14 years after his conversion. So Paul's saved, and he doesn't go to Jerusalem for 14 years. That means that he didn't need Peter. He didn't need James. He didn't need John in verse 9. He didn't need those guys to approve of his ministry. Just think about this for a second. Paul's out ministering the gospel to Gentiles, and he is confident that he's received a revelation from Jesus Christ, and that's enough. And he's busy. He's busy preaching that. He's just busy serving Christ. He didn't need the other apostles to validate anything, including his gospel. Look, in Paul's mind, he's looking at Peter, James, and John. He's saying, look, these are good brothers. They're godly. They love Jesus too. But as he says in verse 7, they added nothing to me. They're good brothers. They love Christ, but they're not the popes, and they don't have any more authority than I have. So quite frankly, Paul's just busy preaching his gospel, and he's confident doing it. Verse 2, he says, I went up with Barnabas. Barnabas was his missionary partner. Uh, Barnabas went with him everywhere, son of encouragement. He says he went with Barnabas, taking along Titus. Now, this is significant because Titus is a Gentile. And um, which means he was uncircumcised. All right, so Paul now is going to be taking Titus with him to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Why did he go up? Was it because Paul and Peter and James, verse 9, had summoned him? Had said, you have to come here and stand before us and tell us your gospel, and if we disagree with it, then you're done. Is that why? Is that what happened? No. Look at verse 2. He went up because of a revelation given to him by God. Uh, in other words, God called him to Jerusalem. God told Paul to go to Jerusalem, and, and he went in obedience. And we're told in verse 2 that he had a private meeting with some of the men there in Jerusalem. And we, we can gather from verse 6 and verse 9 that these guys were Peter, James, and John. All right? So here he goes with Barnabas and Titus, and they're going to have a private meeting now with Peter, James, and John. All right? So so why did he go up? This is really strange, verse 2. This, this is strange. Paul says, I went up to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order, here's the purpose, to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. That is a very strange statement. In light of chapter 1, where Paul says, this is my gospel, I did not receive this gospel from man. I received this gospel from God. And if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to this, let him be accursed because this is the gospel. So he, it's not like he's struggling with whether or not he's preaching the gospel. So why is he going to sit before Peter, James, and John and make sure that he's not running in vain? And this, this, is a, this is an exceedingly odd statement. Did, did Paul think in his heart of hearts, maybe I'm wrong? Did, did Paul think, maybe I'm preaching a false gospel myself? Maybe I do need to hear from Peter, James, and John so that they can assure me that my gospel really is from God. 
So I, I better consult with them. I better hear from these men so that they can validate what I'm saying. Is that what's going on? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I, I don't think that's what's going on at all. I, I think actually that would be a dramatic misreading of Galatians 1 and all that we've considered so far. Think about it. Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road and gave him the gospel himself. And that's why he's been preaching the gospel for 14 years since his conversion. And that's why he's been doing it all these years with no need of validation from anybody. And the other time he was in Jerusalem, he was only there for two weeks. We saw that in the end of chapter 1. And he only passingly has a conversation with Peter. Just passingly. Kind of like, hey, Peter. You know, let's talk for a few minutes, and that's it. He's gone. So, so the, what's the purpose of this statement? Well, I think Paul is saying this. Here's, here's the purpose. I think Paul is Paul's making a very nuanced point here. He's saying that his work to the Gentile regions, his ministry to the Gentile regions, would have been practically in vain if the Jerusalem apostles did not agree with his gospel. What he's saying is this, from Paul's perspective, if the Jerusalem church did not recognize his preaching and his ministry among the Gentiles, practically that kills it. Practically that messes it up, especially with the Judaizers opposing his message. That's the last thing he needs is for the Jerusalem church then to come along and say, well, we're also not sure about Paul's preaching. So Paul's concerned that his gospel, he's so passionate about the gospel that he's going to go, he's going to sit before these guys and say, guys, this is what I'm preaching, this is the gospel, and I want you guys on board with what I'm doing. I mean, that's really what he's doing. He's not going to sit before them. It's not an inferior sitting before a superior. These guys are on the same level, and Paul's actually taking charge. Paul's leading. Paul's going there and saying, guys, I want to talk to you about the gospel that I'm preaching. I want to make sure we're on the same page here really kind of the opposite so paul had no doubt about his gospel but uh, think about the implications of this meeting what if peter james and john what if they didn't agree with him what if when paul laid out the gospel peter james and john actually confronted him and said we don't like what you're preaching the church would have been split right in two on that very day Neither side would have accepted the other. Both would have questioned whether the others were even saved. Just think about this. Think how pivotal this text is. Paul, Paul and his Gentile churches would have doubted whether the Jewish churches really even had faith in Christ. And the Jewish churches would have doubted whether or not salvation can even come to the Gentiles. I mean, that's what Paul's saying in verse 5, that the very truth of the gospel was at stake. So this this passage is kind of important. Now let me press into the heart of the text here. Verse 4. If you notice, there is a group of false brothers who were trying to undermine the gospel. And Paul uses uh, military language to portray them. Uh, He describes it as a covert operation that's taking place. Really what this is, is this is espionage in the early church. This is spy work. Notice the language of verse 4. False brothers were secretly brought in. So it looks like somewhat of a conspiracy here. They were secretly brought in. They slipped in. Slick. They slipped in to spy. To spy what? To spy out our freedom. These guys had come in the way all good spies come in, which is completely unnoticed. They sit in the pew right beside you. They smile. They shake your hand. They talk the same language they use the same theological terminology. They, they go to care group. They go to Bible study. They, the, the, these guys slip right in, completely unnoticed. They, they didn't walk in with a hat and a big sign and say, hey, I'm a spy. <laughs> now, these, guys are, these guys come in. They take their place. They start making their assessments. They start making their judgments. These guys, Paul calls, uh, he calls pseudo-Adelphoi, which pseudo-false. Adelphoi brothers, they're false brothers, or as J.B. Phillips calls them, sham Christians, fakes. So we're not talking about real brothers, we're talking about fakes, people that act like they're brothers, but they're not. 
And we know, we know that they came in to undermine the gospel from Acts 15.1. Acts 15.1 is the Jerusalem Council, but verse 1 in Acts 15 says this, that the false brothers were saying, listen, unless the Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. That, that's what the false brothers were saying. Unless you're circumcised according to not just any old custom, but the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Saved. Not, not a good Jew, not a, not a good Gentile, not a good person. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And Paul counters that. This is amazing. Think about this. Paul counters that by saying, that, listen, no, no, no. The gospel's for every culture, for all time. And to prove it, what does he do? He brings Titus with him. He brings a Gentile with him to Jerusalem to prove that the gospel is for every culture, including an uncircumcised guy. Now, this is brilliant on the part of Paul. But it's risky from a human perspective. It's risky because if the Jerusalem apostles did not have the courage or clear-headedness to accept Paul's Jesus plus nothing gospel, then the church would have split in two and the gospel would have been lost. And right out the door with it would have gone your freedom. And this is the first time in the letter that Paul actually connects the issue of freedom with the gospel. And here's what he's arguing. He's arguing this, that if we miss it here... If we add circumcision, if we mix in a little law, it's not just a theological mistake. It's slavery and the loss of freedom and the gospel altogether. So, so Paul's going to take Titus as a test case. He's going to take him right before Peter, James, and John. He's going to say, this is the gospel I'm preaching, and this is one of my guys that got saved. Any thoughts on that? And those guys are either going to say, we don't think he's a Christian because he hasn't been circumcised according to the law of Moses, putting them in the same camp as false brothers, or they're going to say, praise God. So this is, the suspense is rising. The, the tension is rising. This meeting is probably a little tense. Number one, because Paul hasn't been there in 14 years. And number two, because we don't know what's going to happen. So he goes in, they go into this meeting. Now let me explain just a little bit further why circumcision is such a big deal. Maybe you're sitting there, you're saying, okay, all right, I understand the gospel's at stake, but what's the link between circumcision and the gospel? let Let me explain. Circumcision was a part of the Old Testament ceremonial law, which means that the Old Testament ceremonial law was all about detailed prescriptions about food, about dress, or about other daily practices under the Mosaic Code. And the reason for it was if you followed these things, you'd be cleaned. They were known as the clean laws, the clean laws. They made you acceptable in God's presence. So they were known as clean laws. And under this code, code, Gentiles as a whole were considered completely unclean in the Old Testament and unfit for the presence of God unless they were circumcised. Listen, unless they were circumcised and adopted the Mosaic Code for daily living. So the ceremonial law really served two practical purposes. Number one, it kept Jews culturally distinct from the idol worshipers around them. So they had their own distinct culture. They're isolated. They're, they're, they're themselves. They're following the Mosaic Code. They're following this daily list of clean laws. They're doing this stuff. They're isolated over here. So that's number one. And number two, it served to demonstrate that God is a holy God. God is a holy God, and we cannot come into his presence if we are not cleansed from our impurities. And that was the purpose of the law. It was to teach us that we are not naturally clean or acceptable in God's sight. And right there is the point. Right here is the point. This is the issue. What makes a person clean before God? What makes you clean this morning before God? What makes you able, what makes you acceptable in God's presence? 
And Paul is saying, if you turn again to circumcision, if you turn again to circumcision as a means of getting right with God, as a means of becoming clean, as a means of becoming acceptable in his presence, you are rejecting Christ and his righteousness in favor of your own. And if you go back to circumcision, you're placing yourself under slavery again. And if you do that, guess what? You're also obligated to keep the whole law perfectly and as we'll see in chapter 3 verse 10 that's a bad deal a really bad idea because paul says in chapter 3 verse 10 for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them So let me break that down. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That means every single person who trusts they've been good enough. That means every single person who trusts that they've done enough of the things that please God or done enough of what's right, every single person that's been as good as they can be is under a curse. All who rely on works of the flesh are under a curse. So that means... If you were raised in a Bible-believing home all your life, if you've been trying to obey the Bible's commands, if you, if you trust that what you've done is good enough to get to heaven, then you are under a curse. Let me back up and, and just, just make sure we're speaking the same language. The God of the Bible is a moral God. He's a God who thinks in categories of right and wrong, of sin and of righteousness. He's a God who is a judge of all the earth. He has a law, and his law says what he expects. And all who have not obeyed his law perfectly are under a curse. And everyone who thinks they've done enough to please God are under a curse. So everybody's trying to be good, including the prostitute down the street who thinks that she's better than the other prostitute because before she went out to hit the streets, she dropped her child off with a babysitter when the other prostitute left her kid in a pack-and-play alone. She's operating on a system of righteousness, and she thinks she's better. And everybody is operating on some system of righteousness. Some people think they're better because they've taken their children out of the wicked secular educational system and are homeschooling them. And if you're trusting in that, you're under a curse. There are a million ways to rely on your own righteousness. And guess what? All of them earn one thing, the curse of God. Now, the other thing the Bible declares is that Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come to take that curse He has come to take the curse that we are under for us. Galatians 3 says, again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, the Roman method of execution was was terrible. It was to hang people on trees. This is, this is way worse than the electric chair. This is way more inhumane than lethal injection. It was the worst form of human torture. And Jesus took that form of ter- torture not only in his body, but by suffering the very wrath of God, the curse that, that is on God for sinners. Jesus takes that on himself for other people. And all of that becomes yours if you trust in Christ. If you, trust, if you trust in Christ as the one who took the curse for you in your place and delivered you from the curse, then guess what? You are no longer under that curse in any way, shape, or form. And that can happen. And that can happen years before you ever hear the word deacon or years before you ever hear the word elders or years before you ever hear the word homeschooling, or years before you ever hear doctrinal statements of their 1689 London Confession, or all things that we think we ought to do as Christians. That can happen the moment you, as a wicked sinner, under the curse of God, believe in Christ. The curse is gone. The curse is lifted. The moment you place your trust in Jesus, the curse is broken. And he took that. And that, my friends, is the gospel. 
That is the gospel. And Paul is fighting to protect this message. That's what he's doing in Galatians 2. He is fighting to protect that message. So much so that he's insistent. He is so insistent upon the fact that there's only one way to be cleansed from our impurities, and it's not through the law, and it's not through circumcision, and it's not through, as we saw last week, the religion of I. It's through the religion of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the point. It's the Jesus-only religion. Friends, that's the problem with circumcision in Galatians 2. And it's the problem with any Jesus plus something else way to God. It's a turning away from Jesus. And it's a reliance on self. And that's the problem with any works righteousness where you try to earn your way into heaven. God doesn't want you to earn your way into heaven. God wants you to rely on his son. God wants you to rely on his sacrifice, which was his son, because only he was good enough. Only Christ was good enough, and that's the point. And that's why we're called to trust him. If you're here today as a non-Christian, you need to turn from yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, perhaps... Your life is is filled with all kinds of questions then about what does this mean for me as a Christian? What if you're a believer here? Um, let me ask let me ask some challenging questions for us. How how easy is it do you think for all of us to be all of us to be Jesus plus people? All right. So the, we we know clearly these guys these false brothers were Jesus plus people, but but surely. We're not Jesus-plus people, right? I mean, we go to church. We're members of a a good, strong, hearty local church. We have a strong doctrinal, confessional statement. We we love Jesus. We we talk this way. I'm preaching it right now. I'm saying Jesus is the only way. So we clearly are on the same page here, right? None of us can be Jesus-plus people, can we? Well, sadly, I think it's much easier than we think. And if you don't think so, the very next passage, Peter becomes a Jesus-plus person. That's pretty scary. If Peter can become a Jesus plus person by elevating food, then we can do that. This is this is this is really critical for us. Let let me let me try to push on us a little bit here. Um, This is subtle, and none of us would ever admit it if we do it. But herein lies the danger. We don't really think we're at risk of adding to Jesus. But could it be? Could it be for some of us that that Christianity for you has become something more than Jesus? Is that possible? Is it possible that perhaps there's an emotional idol that you've added to Jesus in order to find happiness and significance in life? Are you really happy with Jesus alone? What if God stripped you of everything but Jesus? What if he took your kids away? Is there any emotional idols that we've added? Or could it be that some of those idols in, in, in our lives are so pronounced that we would have to admit that Jesus really never has been the point of our life? In fact, Jesus is more of a utility, a means of establishing a happy life on earth. You know, a good family, good kids, good morals, safe. Safety. Maybe that's what this is all about. Or perhaps your life is, is, is about getting a good education, a rewarding job, a good paycheck. Or perhaps it's about having a close set of friends or enjoying the energy that you get from social networking. Perhaps it's about having a clean car and a nice house and an immaculate lawn. Maybe it's about having a dynamic family with kids that are extremely respectful and extremely successful. Well, friends, if if Christianity is just about having a nice family with well-behaved kids who have been classically educated or a nice church life with perfect hymns and pretty sermons, then I'm afraid this thing is a sham. But on the other hand, If God really became a man, 
And Jesus really took the curse of God in my place, making a way for me to have a reconciled relationship with him for eternity, then surely I'll be ready to give my life for his cause. If that message is true, if this message of the gospel is true, then surely I'll be ready to pray like there really is a God and like time is really running out and like heaven and hell are real realities that are actually separating some of our loved ones from God. If the gospel is true, then I'll, I'll be ready to take this thing seriously and ask the question, what can I do even at the cost of my life's blood? so that the truth of the gospel, verse 5, might be preserved. I, don't, I, I look at Paul, and I don't see a guy who's comfortable. I don't see a guy who's, who's, who's wrapped up in himself or his family or his kids or his house or his job or his paycheck or his, or his wallet. I don't see a guy here in, in Galatians 2 who's wrapped up with himself. I see a guy who's radically other-centered. I see a guy who is so God-soaked. And God saturated that he has gotten to the point where he says, even at my life's blood, I will preserve this gospel. Have you gotten to that place where you actually believe that this message of the gospel is worth your life blood? Is it? Is it really worth your life blood? Is it? Do you believe it that firmly? Do you believe it that strongly? Are you strong enough to say, I'll go to the mission field I'll go and I'll die on the mission field. I'll give myself to the cause of Jesus. Send me to the unreached people group. I'll go there. I'll set up a language. I'll pray. I'll work like William Carey for 14 years, writing languages in Tamil and and, and southern India. And I'll write and I'll write and I'll write. And all of it's burned up. And William Carey says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he starts all over again. The very next day to, to, to get the gospel to the Indians. Do we believe the message of the gospel this strongly? That's radical Christianity. And I know it's in vogue to talk about radical Christianity. I know that's popular. But listen, I'm not asking us to be radical Christians in some vague sense of that term. I'm asking us to live a life that is equally as radical as the message of the gospel itself. Can we just get to that level? This isn't about being some radical Christian in some real, some vague sense. This is about this is about asking the question: What did Christ demand of us? What has Christ really demanded of us? Did, did did Jesus say did Jesus say take up your cross daily, or was he just was he just playing with words there? Did Jesus really mean that you should you should that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I don't think it's too much for Christ to ask us. So let's start here. Let's start with the fact that our lives should never be less radical than the gospel. That, that, that's the standard. The standard isn't what some guy writes in his book. The standard isn't Dave Platt. The standard is the gospel. Our lives should be equal to the gospel in its, in its radical nature. So friends, to live, we have to have something worth dying for. And for Paul, that's Christ. And for, and for us, the question is, is Christ worth dying for? He was convinced that the gospel was worth fighting for. He had seen the futility of trying to earn his way into God's favor. Chapter 1, the religion of I. So Paul fights for the gospel. And here's what I love about this passage, verse 5. I love the victory that is won here for us by Paul. I love verse 5 where he says concerning the false brothers, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment. Isn't that great? Like he's not, he's not like we barely made it by the skin of our teeth. It's a weird phrase, by the way. What does that mean? Weird. He's not saying he's not saying that we barely made it. Paul is saying he's saying here he's saying that not even for a moment did we yield. We were like get out of here. Like the gospel's clear. The gospel's real clear. Jesus came to die for sinners and he died in your place and he took the curse of God and if you're preaching something else to hell with you. And he's crystal clear on this message. 
And I'm glad. I love verse 5 because I'm glad Paul didn't yield because, listen, his battle is our victory. (laughs) So, like I said at the beginning, there's victory all over this passage. And your victory this morning is because Paul was a man who took the gospel right into these guys who who are considered pillars, these guys who are considered elite, these guys who are considered influential, Peter, James, and John. And Paul is not intimidated by these guys. He's not afraid of these guys. He goes right up to him and he says, here's the gospel that I'm preaching. It's a gospel where, where Jesus takes our sin and he takes it on himself and he endures the curse for us. And we add nothing to it. That message and that message alone, including not adding circumcision. And that's what I'm preaching. And Titus is a case of this. He's not been circumcised and he's not going to be circumcised. What do you guys say? That's the point. And Paul is not afraid of these guys. Peter's a Jew. James is a Jew. John is a Jew. He's not afraid. He's saying, I know the gospel that I've received from Jesus, and we better be on the same team here. And friends, we have to fight for the gospel. When the authority of the Bible in our culture, the exclusivity of Christ, the atonement, justification by faith alone, the cross and the resurrection are up for grabs, Listen, people, we must fight for those truths. We must fight for those truths because I don't see this is these are this is the gospel. This is the essence of Christianity. So if we lose that, the point of Paul here is that you've lost your freedom. You've lost your hope. You've lost everything. So we we are people. We need to be hunkered down in our war shelters with a wartime mentality saying, here's the gospel, this is what we believe, we're radical about it, we believe that Jesus has freed us, so we're willing to go out and do hard things for Jesus because we've been freed by Jesus, and if anybody tries to touch this gospel, to hell with them. That's radical stuff, and that's what Paul is, is getting at. But, but with that said, I don't see Paul here and the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, fighting over secondary matters. Listen, this is important. They're not engaged in intense debates here over, over things that Christians may differ on and still make their way faithfully to heaven. And by the way, circumcision is not one of those things that you can kind of have a fraternal debate on. Do we add circumcision to Jesus? No. This is a, this is a gospel issue. They're not debating issues here. This is not an intense debate over things that we can disagree on and faithfully make it to heaven. Now, I may get to heaven and realize that it was premillennialism after all. <laughs> I doubt it. But, but listen, I will not get to heaven at all if I do not believe the biblical gospel, the authority of Scripture, the exclusivity of Christ, and justification. And these issues are of such importance that we must be willing to go to the mat over them. But with that said, we must be careful not to conclude that all issues are worth going to the mat over. They're not. Especially in light of our pursuit of unity in the context of the local church. Jesus prayed that we would be unified. And we need to take that seriously. Not every issue you think is important is worth fighting for. Now, we do have a statement of faith here at Heritage, and we've asked our members to be in substantial agreement with that statement, but we understand there there will be some differences of opinion among us. So right away we have to be humble and we have to provide room for differing convictions on certain matters. So it's good, for example, to have strong convictions on the Sabbath and the gifts of the Spirit. But friends, let me encourage us to spend the bulk of our time protecting the essentials of the Christian faith, things that we must agree upon to rightly be considered Christians, like the gospel. And thankfully, it wasn't just Paul who felt passionately about it, but the rest of the apostles did as well. In verses 7 through 9, makes this really clear. Despite all the tension that surrounded the meeting beforehand between Paul and the Jerusalem elders, they all leave the meeting joined in one gospel, Joined in one cause to the praise of God. Peter, James, and John, what did they do when, they, when, when Paul brings Titus before them as a test case? What do they do? They extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that happened? Verse 9, and when James and Cephas, which is Peter, 
just a different name for Peter, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace, there's the word grace, salvation, that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Look at this. Now, now check out this phrase, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There's missions. There's the victory for missions right there. <laughs> already already we're, we're moving out into different, different ethnic groups. Same gospel. Same gospel, different groups. Here it is. One gospel, two mission fields for the glory of God. There's so many ways you could outline this passage. That's the point. One gospel, two mission fields, all for the glory of God. These guys agree. Praise God. They agree. And a victory was won for us on that day. And this is what we need to be passionate about as well, church. This message of the gospel. But while we're being passionate about the gospel's role in our salvation, let us also be equally passionate about the gospel's role in our sanctification. And this is where we're going with Galatians. The beginning part of Galatians is all about justification by faith alone or the role of the gospel in your salvation. You know what the rest of the book starts getting into? The role of the gospel in sanctification. It switches. There's a tone. There's a switch here. So we've got to be, we've got to be, we've got to realize how the gospel fits with our sanctification. That means you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day because constant reminders of the Savior are far more effective in helping you grow than constant reminders of your sin. And when you see your sin, you're meant to fly to the Savior, not to dwell on your sin, but go to Jesus. But my observation is this, is that many of us tend to have a relationship with God um, based on our performance instead of his grace. Just gently challenge you this morning. Is your gospel, is your Christianity, is your life, are you basing that on your performance? Are you basically viewing your relationship with God based on how well you're doing as a Christian? I mean, if you've performed well, whatever the word, whatever well means in your opinion, then you expect God to bless you. And if you haven't performed well, well, then likewise, you, you know, your expectations are reduced accordingly. I mean, is that, is that the kind of, is that the kind of thing, is it the way you're working your, that's, that's starting to sound a lot like the Judaizers, right? Basing your acceptance with God on the basis of how you're doing. So if that's not valid for salvation, that's not valid for sanctification. This is important for us. Please, I, I, I encourage you, I implore you to, to, to learn how to use the gospel to grow as a Christian. This is so critical. The law is not a good help for you or a good guide for you as a performance-based Christian. The gospel is for your growth in Christ. The law points you to Jesus. That's what the law does. Once you get Jesus, you soak yourself in the gospel, and it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. So in this sense, in this sense, we... We have a tendency to live by works rather than by grace. So we say we're saved by grace, but we live by the sweat of our own performance. So it's critical that we realize on a daily basis that our relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of my own performance. You know what? That's a really freeing and joyous experience. I hope you experience that this week. And finally, just as abrupt as the verse itself, verse 10, remember the poor. Seems like a random phrase thrown in there. But it's really not because the context is probably Acts 11. It's debated whether it's Acts 11 or Acts 15, but but the the issue is there's a famine going on in the churches in Judea. And and, and Peter, James, and John are saying, Paul, please remember us. Our, our, our brothers and sisters are, are dying, literally. And please remember the poor. And Paul says, you know what? I'm eager to do that. And I've always been eager to do that. It's, it's beautiful. One of the clearest evidences that these guys love the gospel is that they love the poor. <laughs> Think about that. 
And to the and to the degree, people of God, that you understand mercy, or to the degree that you understand that you've been shown mercy when all you deserve was hell and damnation, to the degree that you understand what God has done for you in his mercy and grace, to that same degree you will show mercy to others. So guess what? If you're not very merciful, guess what that means? You need to go back and understand what God has done for you. Care for the poor is not their gospel, just to be clear, but it is an implication of their gospel. And in heritage, it's something we should care about. The leaders of the early church agreed on this matter, and we as a church ought to agree on this matter. Well, there it is. Amazing love. How can it be? Former slaves, I had to think of John Newton as I prepared this message. He wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader. Then God set him free. Former slaves set free. That's, that's our story this morning, all of us. Slaves. I want you to feel the fact that you used to be a slave, shackled, shackled to the law, shackled to your, yourself. But we've been set free. So, friends, let's not go back. Let's not go back there. All right? The title of the message was From Slavery to Freedom and Back Again. Let's not go back. How about let's go from from slavery to freedom and stop there? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Here's what happened. The king became a slave so that you can become free. Jesus became a slave so that you can be freed from your slavery. And if you're free today, I want you to remember this, that the Emancipation Proclamation has been read. But this time, it was read by Jesus. And Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, I imagine the slaves there, even physical slaves, being freed, the exuberation, the joy, the passion, the love that they must have had, the, uh, the, the excitement in their hearts. And yet, Lord, we've been delivered from a far greater form of slavery. So I pray that you would, we pray that you would take that degree of excitement and joy and passion and, and help us to feel that you have freed us from our slavery. And that affects us and how we live so that Galatians 2 lives in our hearts. Lord, let it live for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name.